Good morning. I must tell you, I, uh, when uh, Walt asked me to preach, I was thinking it would be easy, right? Uh, God said, don't worry about what you're going to say. I will give you the words to speak. And so I decided not to prepare and let God uh, give me the words to speak. But that didn't work because God kept waking me up early in the morning uh, for the last several weeks saying, uh, it, I'm going to give you the words to say, but it's going to be early in the morning before the sermon. So I've, I've, I've worked through that part of it. And for those of you who are out of town or visiting and, and your friends brought you here into some pretense that there was a great preacher and that was going through an excellent study in Proverbs, uh, your, your friends, your family, your hosts, they're honest, good people. Uh, but I'm not that pastor. Pastor Nelson is out on vacation this week, and so we're going to take a look at God's Word, and we're going to step away from Proverbs a little bit. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you, to study your word, to hear what you have to say. And Father, I do pray that you would speak through the words you have prepared today and given me. Now, I pray that your word would not return void. For the errors that are spoken, they would be discarded, and where there is truth, it would be heard, and that lives would be changed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you all, but we were swarmed with catalogs this holiday season. Many, many catalogs, most of which ended up in the recycling bin very quickly. But there was one which I think I read every single page of, and it was filled with pithy statements that could go on coffee mugs and T-shirts and anything that you might like. And one that I thought was very relevant to today's sermon was this. Past, present, and future all walk into a bar. It was tense. All right. Get it? Okay. That same tension plays in our own lives today, the past, the present, and the future, all working together. And that, that leads us to how do, we, how do we understand those things and how do they affect who are you? A man asked me if I was going to preach on the, the song, and I said no. But um, the question we have is, is who are you? And, and why do I ask that? The church seems to go through phases that we see in our congregation in our own lives. And a more, more recently, we've seen a lot of folks in an identity crisis, not quite sure who they are in Christ. And this manifests itself in, in many ways, the self-doubt and fear, many times leading to self-destructive behaviors, a tepid faith, not sure we're trusting in the right things, or bold independence, I don't need a crutch, or pride, isn't God lucky to have me on his side? There's a lack of understanding or contentment, or satisfaction or comfort or confidence or humility or boldness in who we are in Christ, and we can err in many of those different ways. And we're here in church, we're doing churchy things, on the outside we're wearing our I'm a Christian badge, but on the inside there's this overwhelming tension of who we were, who we are, and who we're going to be. Or maybe that's not you, you feel pretty squared away. And you're not sure how to respond to others who are struggling in such a way with who they are. Do I treat them as believers, as non-believers, as sick people, people to be pitied, people to be emulated? What's, what's the right response? How do I struggle? How do, they, how do I deal with these folks who are struggling with sins and don't understand, that I don't understand or can't relate to, or in some cases maybe I can relate to, but have overcome? So instead of that internalizing that question of who am I, you might ask, who were you? Who are you? And who are you going to be when we're dealing with folks struggling with sin? So we have that same past, present, and future tension with kind of that bar. They've all walked into us. We've got the past where what I've done, what I've failed to do, 
what others have done to me afflict and affect us and our thoughts. The present, what do people think of me? Am I earning my keep? Do the people out there think I'm kind of weird up here talking? Am I qualified? Am I accepted? Am I loved? In the future, what will become of me? What will people think of me? What will be my legacy? And how will I be remembered? Pulling from the great theologian Albert Einstein, I had a statement. said, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. And I'm not trying to get into great theology here. And he's talking about that whole time relativity side of what I just said was in your future when I said it. By the time it got to you, it was in my past. I'm not going to go through all that muckety-muck. But the reality is all of those things come into us, and there is no just distinction from the past, the present, and the future for us. They're all wrapped up in who we are. Today we're going to take a look at a small passage inside the book known as 1 Corinthians. And many years ago, I sat under the pastoral care of a fellow named Lane Adams, who always reminded us that a text without a context is a pretext. And since we've been going through Proverbs for quite some time, and we're going to take a one-day foray into this letter of 1 Corinthians, I thought we'd give a little background on 1 Corinthians and, and get some context. In the book of Acts, chapters 15 through 18, we read about Paul's second missionary journey, starting about 48, 49, A.D. and ending sometime in 51 is a two-and-a-half to three-year journey, 18 months of which was spent in Corinth. I'll work on this side. So starting here, worked around, and down in Athens, got over to Corinth, and stayed there for 18 months, then worked his way back to Ephesus, down to Jerusalem, and back up to Antioch where he finished. Now, like many of the churches Paul visited on his journeys, Corinth was a major crossroads, a three- to four-mile-wide isthmus, used as a shortcut between the Ionian and the Aegean Seas. And this Peloponnesian Peninsula over here was a very large landmass that had no other way to get to and from it. So about 8,300 square miles of land, and you'd get across water where that was the, the three, four-mile-wide isthmus that was there. And you can imagine not wanting to travel out into the, the deeper sea and all the trade that was going on there, that that was the easiest way to get stuff from one side of the world to the other and pass that through. And so... Even though there's a canal there today, it was uh, dug in the 1800s, and even though Nero tried to dig a canal back oh, a couple thousand years ago, it didn't work, back then it was just portaged across the land, but that made it a key trade route. And it operated under Roman law and had offered every satisfaction, convenience, comfort, and debauchery one would expect in such a major crossroads. Jews and Greeks, Romans, slaves, masters, tradesmen, politicos, dock workers, entertainers, if you wanted to make money, be entertained, see the traveling wonders of the world, engage in healthy debate, and like the hustle and bustle of a, of a big city that never sleeps, and worship the God of your choice with no opposition, Corinth was a place to be. Now Paul's writing indicate three letters to Corinth. The first letter mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.9 is not preserved for us. And this letter, the 1 Corinthians, was written about three to four years later when Paul was in Ephesus about in around 54 A.D., now, the content of, of Paul's writing is, is kind of like this sermon. Paul's got a, a line of where he's going, and then he takes these sidebars that you wonder, what's happening here? And it just kind of goes on in a loop and a loop and a loop. And it kind of reminds me of a cruise that I took years ago. I had the pleasure of growing up some of my years in Iran, and we took a vacation in the Greek Isles. We'd get on a boat. I loved to play shuffleboard and Greek fresca and all the things that we were allowed to do on that boat. And then all of a sudden, we'd stop somewhere, and I would be 
get into all of these details of some great pillars and broken down stone buildings and history of thousands of years ago. And then we could get back on the boat and have some fun playing shuffleboard. And then we'd go in overnight and stop at another port and over again. So we're going to do a couple of those sidebar trips today as we're on our little cruise. Now, what about Paul's letter? He certainly starts with his standard encouragement. And he quickly jumps into a number of issues being reported about the condition of the Corinthian church. This is where we find the verses about, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Or today we might say, I follow Piper, I follow Keller, I follow Begg, I follow Nilsson. And, and, and those, are the, those are the divisions that were popping up there. It was pride and arrogance and everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. They were distinguishing between rich and poor, Jew and Greek, master and slave. And there was constant one-upmanship. And Paul says, stop it. There is no division in Christ. Regardless of, of where your teachers came from, what your pedigree is, your favorite Bible teacher, preach Christ, follow Christ, and live Christ. As Paul's wrapping up these earlier sections of admonishment, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not to talk with these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Sidebar number one. You just talk? Is your Christian walk just talk? Do you love to debate the truth of the gospel or consider the message you heard, discussing its merits but never getting to its practical application? Is God's power evident in your life, or is it just words and intellectual curiosity? A social satisfaction is church club, a place to come and feel good. Do we use words and position to advantage ourselves as the church in Corinth did? Do we use differences to establish our worth and superiority? Do we divide the church and tear down others so we can be top dog? Or can we so boldly say with Paul, follow me, do what I do? Not because of confidence in ourselves, but because we experience and see God's power working in and through us. Do our kids see it? I messed up big time this week. I was not the gospel to my family. And that's one of the things that scares me the most, dads. Our kids see God many times the way they see us. Can we tell our kids, imitate me? They're doing it. They're doing it the way we need them to in following Christ. Young men and women, do your peers want to be like you because they see Christ in you? They see God's power at work in and through you? I pray that it be so. Second sidebar, what is this power of God that he speaks of? For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. The power of God is the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Christ died once for all, and all who would rest in him alone are forgiven, restored, and eternally reconciled to God. That is the power of the gospel, not the words. Let's get back on track with Corinthians. 
Paul writes in his letter to 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And that's what he's done in those first four chapters. Then he moves on to training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul talks about sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, lawsuits against believers, principles for marriage, the unmarried and widows, eating food offered to idols, giving up one's own rights, idolatry itself, worship, head coverings, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, one God, many members, the way of love. There's only been one wedding in my life that I've been to that hasn't had that passage in it. It's performed by a witch. I can answer that questions about that later. Prophecy, tongues, orderly and worship, the resurrection, generosity, and his regular closing statements. And it's in the midst of this discussion of lawsuits that Paul asks, why are you taking one another to court? Why are you going before folks who do not fear God, who are not transformed by the gospel, who will not speak the wisdom of God? Jesus Christ was willing to be wronged and laid down his legal rights. What about you? And in the midst of this admonishing, he exhorts the church in regards to their identity, addressing the tension of the past, the present, and the future. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sidebar number three, do not be deceived. The world tells us different. Some claiming the name of Christ tell us different. They tell us some sins are more socially acceptable. Some sins are no longer sins at all. Homosexuality, adultery, premarital sex, pornography, divorce, abortion, suicide, self-mutilation, deprivation, cheating on your taxes, gambling, everybody does it. Drunkenness is okay as long as you have a designated driver, right? You're not guilty if you don't get caught. Proverbs 30.12, I promised Walt I'd pull a proverb in. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. If we live and die in active rebellion towards God, ignoring the power of his gospel, doing what is right in our own eyes, we're lost, we're dead, we're eternally separated from God without hope. And if you are here today and you're not reconciled to God through Christ and you refuse the offer of reconciliation, that God has given us in the birth and resurrection of his son. God's not being mean. He's letting you have what you want. To be no part of his kingdom, to not be his child, to not be in a right relationship with him. And that's not a good place to be, but we don't have to be there. As Paul said, and such were some of you. What you were, you no longer are. These are words of hope. We're not bound any longer to our sinful nature. Our old identity is no more. We're clean. These are words of transformation. We have a new name, the name of Christ. We are new creations. We have the righteousness of Christ. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. It's an action we're called to, but it's God working in us. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and pleasing. For from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone in Christ is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Lizzie made this very clear to me the other day. 
She gave me permission to do this, so hopefully we don't rope her into a trip. But Lizzie, one of her special qualities is her ability to be creative with crafts and look at things that are boring and mundane and make something pretty cool out of them, a new creation. We living in here in Southern Maryland purchased a lot of things online and came in a variety of packaging and I took more to the transfer station the other day than I think two or three weeks combined in any other month. A lot of that packaging material. Have you seen those little air bubbles that we package with sometimes? They're just pockets of air packed up against one another. I have one of those today. This is one of those. And you guys can't see it. I'm gonna come up and look afterwards. But Lizzie looked at this, a bag of air, and said, that's a cat. And she twisted it, and there's little ears painted here, and two eyes, and a mouth and a nose, and it looks like a little cat. And I cannot look at one of these bags ever again in my life without saying, that is about to be a cat. <laughs> and the things that we throw away, or we rip with a knife, or we set down on the floor and stomp on to hear them go pop, trash, useless, to Lizzie was a cat. We're transformed the same way. Common use packaging material transformed by God into a new creation. Thanks for that illustration, Eric. Let's talk more about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're going to break this one down a little bit in, in a little bit more detail. This notion of washing, making himself oneself clean from impurities. The Old Testament is full of washing requirements. In Exodus 19, the people washed their garments, even in preparation for Moses receiving the law. He's about to go up on the mountain, and the people have to wash their garments before they go. And if we take a look at Leviticus, there's over 30 situations where washing is required. And there's a big basin for washing prior to entrance into the tent of meeting in the tabernacle and later in the temple. In the New Testament, we've got washing Jesus, washing the disciples' feet, the washing of, of cups and garments, and we talk about the washing in Revelation. Jesus reminds folks, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. We've been washed. The inside is clean. Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. I don't know who was speaking there. But Jesus has made his disciples clean. We look further in Revelation to come, the future. After this, I looked, this is John speaking, what he saw when he was writing. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and praise and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We have been washed. God looks at us now as if we have been washed. Some boring theology. What is sanctification? Anybody who's made it through our communicants class? Anybody want to offer up? We could read it. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed by the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Some key words here, the work. God is continuing to be and still is at work in us. We still struggle with sin, but God counts us as sanctified completely. And what is justification? It's an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight despite the fact that we're more and more able to follow him, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. How did that come? It came in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter declared in the temple of Pentecost, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And it occurs by the Spirit of God. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or from Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So these are all in us today, the past, the present, and the future. We were in sin and rebellion. We were, are wrestling with our old sinful nature. And we will be victorious in the day of Jesus Christ. And what is God's view of us? Enemies of God? No. Struggling losers who can't get it right? No. His view is that the work of Christ is done. We are cleansed from all sin and righteousness in God's sight. We are children of the King. So why do we still struggle? With sexually immorality, with idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, reviling and swindling, with oppression or self-destructive behaviors or pride and arrogance. Well, like Paul in his Romans 7 discourse, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is right there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, despite the fact that we struggle. There is no condemnation. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, imperish the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because... God sees the sins of our past and forgives them. He sees the struggle of our present and looks at us as sanctified. Because God has made us washed and righteous and justified in his sight. And through the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do his work. There's a hymn written by Hattie Buell in 1877. It reads this, my father is such in houses and lands, he holds the wealth of the world in his hands, of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold. His coffers are full, he has riches untold. My father's own son, the savior of men, once wandered on earth as the poorest of them, but now he is pleading our pardon on high, that we may be his when he comes by and by. In today's passage, I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe, and a crown. As we look at Christmas Day, we usually think of the baby in the manger. And that's the present once, now, or in the past, by a few days, by several thousand years. And we look and we live in the present of Easter some days, and the cross, and then the presence of the resurrection, and the future promise that that holds. So for those of us here today who do not know Christ, know this, the manger is empty. While the baby is no longer there, the gift revealed in that manger is God coming in human flesh, Jesus Christ given for you, the gift of God being eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can receive that gift offered to you today. For those of you uh, struggling with our identity in Christ and wanting to beat up ourselves over who we are, know this, the cross is empty. There is no more punishment to be paid. 
Jesus died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. God does not lie. Your sins have been paid for in full. When Jesus Christ cried out on the cross to tell us thy, it is finished, paid in full, it meant there is no debt remaining for you to pay. You have been changed. You have a new name. And God knows you only by that new name. For those of us who have received the gospel and are confident we know the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we know that the tomb is empty. Through the Holy Spirit, we are called to be the power of God, not just his words, but the power of God to be the gospel. Not just accepting other sinners in their sin, thinking, oh, I'm a sinner too. Not creating dividing lines, not judging, as Paul warned in the early parts of 1 Corinthians. Not shaking our heads and saying in false humility, there but by the grace of God go I. But loving each other as we struggle with sin, looking past sin, seeing the righteousness of Christ, and treating and seeing folks as God sees them. In Christ, new creations, old passed away, the new has come. No longer plastic bags filled with air, but new creations in Christ. The power of God. Hattie Buell ends her song this way. A tent or a cottage, why should I care if that's what I'm going to do here on this earth? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still may I sing. All glory to God. I'm a child of the king. Regardless of your past, regardless of your present struggles, regardless of what your earthly future holds in store, know this, in Christ, you are a child of the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us, that we have salvation through Christ, that though we are a work in process, you look at us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are delighted in us. There is not even a hint of our past sins and struggles and failures. You look on us as a new creation, that we are your children. We are children of the King. Father, let us go forth into this new year knowing that is who we are. We are loved by you. And that hope is eternally secure because you have made it so. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.